wish we were under better circumstances. Well, we say that, though, and we know that it's God's best circumstance because He ordains it and He calls people to be with Him. Uh, but we certainly would have wished that Mrs. Lynn could still be here. Let's take our Bibles this morning. Leviticus chapter 1. Your pastor asked, uh, well, rather, I asked him if there's anything I could do to help. And he said, well, would you come and cover a couple Sundays here? Um, I began to think, what in the world do I say and preach? Uh, what can I give them? There'll be the most help to them. And our church is in the middle of a series. We've been working our way through the first five books of the Bible. And we've been very much blessed uh, through our study of the book of Leviticus. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Levita what? You know, what is Leviticus? It's probably the book of the Bible that nobody ever covers. And there are good reasons for that. But it's a beautiful book. It's full of deep, rich truths. We'll certainly take, or simply take the time to dig into it. So I'm going to share with you, if it's all right, just what God's been giving to us over in Silver Springs. Leviticus chapter 1 is our text passage. And this might excite you. I'm only going to do verse 1, okay? Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. And the Lord called unto Moses... And spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Father, help me now as I preach your word. May it be a blessing, a help uh, to this group of people, to this church. Lord, there are some that are grieving here today. There are some that are absent because of sickness, illness. Uh, Lord, there are some that are here, and this, I mean, they are they're full of joy. They're excited. This has been the best time of their life at this moment. There are so many spiritual needs that are in this room, and I, in my power, am incapable of meeting all of them. The Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to take your word and apply it to each heart individually as only you can, that truly your word would not return to you void, but it would accomplish your purpose this morning. If there are any here that do not know Christ as Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, most importantly, I ask this in this moment of time that you give me clarity and wisdom of speech so that you are glorified in all that is said and done. We ask these things in your name. Amen. For those who have no idea what the book of Leviticus is, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. It's part of the five books of Moses. And most of us that are familiar with the book, we think of it as a list of rules, a, a, a guidebook, a tech manual for the priests to follow. But it's actually a story. It's a narrative. It's a story that picks up right where Exodus ends. It is a book of the Bible that I have heard very few preachers ever even come close to. Because, let's be real, Leviticus is weird, okay? There are some things in the book that are just strange or, or foreign to uh, modern Christians or modern context. It covers various topics such as sacrifices, festivals, dietary restrictions, ethics, and laws concerning what to touch and what not to touch. The book of Leviticus has served 
as a tombstone for many a Bible reading plan. (laughs) But if you're here and you say, well, why even care? Why study it? Other than the obvious, you're going to say, because it's in the Bible, so we should read it, why study the book of Leviticus? If it's so foreign to modern readers, if it's so strange, if it's so outside of what we are used to reading together or studying together, why even look at it? I mean, it's instructions for how the Israelites are supposed to operate with a priesthood. We don't have a priesthood, so why does it matter? Let me put it this way. The book of Leviticus... Rather, the five books of Moses, they form the foundation for the Old Testament. In fact, we could look at the Old Testament as a running record of whether or not Israel cared to keep the law that God gave to Moses. Every story, David and Goliath, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, every prophecy given of the coming Messiah, all of those things fall back and find their roots in those first five books of the Bible. Now, if the foundation of the Old Testament is the five books of law, and then we come to the New Testament, and and Jesus said, I'm coming to fulfill the law. He told the Pharisees to search the scriptures, for in them they think they have life, and those are they that wrote of me. We can say that the New Testament finds its foundation on the Old Testament. So if Jesus and his coming in the New Testament finds its foundation in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament finds its foundation in the law, then it's important to study the law if we would know Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this, that the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. That first part there, the law has a shadow of the good things to come. It's just an impression. It's, it's, it's maybe not giving the full picture, but it's, it's giving some understanding of what they're about to see in Christ. Yesterday we took our kids to the Discovery Museum in Reno. How many have ever been there? All right, there's this section of the museum where they're looking all about um, inventors and da Vinci, and there's this, this little room. It's painted black, and the entrance to the room is covered with a black curtain. And when you walk in, there's this red button on a white wall. And if you go up and that red button is lit up, you, you press the button and you hear this timer, this beeper starting to go off. And you stand up against the wall and you make a funny pose and there's a great flash of light and you step away from the wall and you look and whatever you were doing on the wall has made an impression in your shadow on the wall. Now, if somebody were to look at that shadow, they wouldn't know necessarily what my face looked like. They wouldn't know what clothes I was wearing. But yesterday, when I was doing it one time, I had a boy in this arm and a boy next to me. And they would know, okay, this is a dad. He has one little guy and one in his arm. It gives an impression, an introduction. It's a shadow of me to come. And so this Old Testament law, the writer of Hebrews says that the law is the shadow of things to come in Jesus Christ. And of the 613 laws given to Israel in the books of Moses, half of them are found 
in the book of Leviticus. It's an important book. Now, as my church has been studying through this book, both in a small group setting and in the congregational setting, that we found that the deeper we've gone into Leviticus, the more strongly we've been able to see the gospel reflected in its pages. This past week, I gave the fourth uh, a sermon on the series. It was on the purity laws. And both me and, and Rick, who's currently preaching at my church, covering for me while I'm gone, we met after the service, and we kind of were both shaking our heads saying, man, we had to rewrite our sermons on Saturday night because we had too much to say. It's a rich book. It's a powerful book. And so today I want to give you just an introduction uh, to the book of Leviticus. Now, as I said, Leviticus picks up where Exodus closes off. So let's refresh our memories. If you aren't, uh, um, have not read through the Exodus, let me catch you up. The book of Exodus begins with God's people, the Israelites, in bondage in the land of Egypt. And God raises up a man by the name of Moses. And God uses Moses powerfully to come before Pharaoh and and announce the message, let my people go. And God, he emphasizes Moses' message with ten plagues on the land of Egypt. It takes the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth and flattens it without a single sword being lifted. Without a single army being raised, God brings his people up out of, out of Egypt. Now God's desire is to bring Israel out of Egypt and call them to himself so that he can be their God and they can be his people. God brings them through the wilderness and they, like us, have a tendency to gripe and complain. And after much complaining and God providing, they finally find themselves at the foot of a mount called Sinai. There, God shows up. The presence of God is seen on Mount Sinai, uh, depicted with fire and, and the earth shaking and the mountain on smoke, in, in, you know, full of smoke. And, and Moses goes up. And he receives the commandments of God. We know the Ten Commandments, but some other instructions given to Israel. One of those instructions given to Israel is the, the uh, building plans, if you would, to build a sort of sacred tent. We know this tent as the tabernacle. Now when Moses comes down from the mountain, God's people have very quickly gone away from following God. Just a little before You know, Moses went up a month before, so 40 days before Moses went up. The people heard God's voice. They they were given the first ten commandments. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Just a little, you know, a little longer than a month later, they've already screwed up and they're worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses deals with that. He has to make intercession before God for the sake of Israel. And and Moses goes back up to the mountain, re-gets the the commandments, and comes back down, and and they begin to build this tabernacle. They gather the elements. They they put it all together. It's this tent. It's a two-room tent covered in badger skin and and all sorts of uh, uh, blues and and, and golds. And and it's wrapped in a courtyard uh, that, instead of having chain-link fence, has white linen curtains. The inner 
uh, the first room, if you would, to go into the tabernacle was called the holy place. The second room, the most holy, or the holy of holies. This was the place where Israel was supposed to worship God. This is the place where Israel is supposed to meet with God. And when they complete the tabernacle, the presence of God comes down off of Mount Sinai and inhabits the tabernacle. God gives a cosmic thumbs up. But at the close of the book of Exodus, we find in Exodus chapter 40, Verses 34 and 35, these words. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was both a wonderful thing yet also a disappointment. Israel had done what God had said. Even after the whole golden calf debacle, God had shown mercy and grace, and they built the tabernacle, and so it was made, it was ready. God came to dwell therein. God's presence was there. The glory filled the tent, but nobody, not even Moses, was allowed to enter in. So they had the tent of meeting, They had the place to gather. They had the place to spend time with God in. But not even Moses was allowed to go into it. And this is where the book of Leviticus picks up. Leviticus opens up the instructions for how Israel is going to be allowed to live and to fellowship and to worship their God. It's really a a book that teaches them how to dwell with God in their midst, with God's holy presence living therein. It instructs us so much. It teaches us about God, who He is, and what He has done. So I'm going to give you three things about the book of Leviticus. Today's message is more introduction. You come tonight, uh, we'll get into more of the meat of of, of of the book here. But number one, Leviticus teaches us about God's, what I'm going to call his chief character trait. God is holy. The holiness of God. Now, we understand that God is so much. He is the great God. He is the one who created all things. He is uh, uh, omnipresent. He is omnipowerful. He is all-knowing. We understand these things about God. Sometimes, though, we can tend to latch onto one aspect of God and forget the others. As a culture, we tend to latch onto the love of God. And certainly we should, because we need God's love. We are made to to, to love God and experience His love. And His love is displayed in a person, Jesus Christ. God is... In, in no uncertain ways, made it very, very clear that He so loved the world. They gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But there is an element of God's character that we tend to avoid. Sometimes we tend to shrink from because it's not as comfortable to us as human beings to talk about. It's not as easy for us to relate with. But it's the aspect of God's holiness. 
If you were to read in the book of Revelation, John gets this vision of the throne room of God. And there before the throne are these angelic beings, and they're, they're singing about God, they're praising God, and they're repeating the same phrase over and over and over again, is that God is holy, holy, holy. We consider the holiness of God. It's displayed in the book of Leviticus in how it instructs the priests to function as servants before God. It instructs the people to function how they bring their offerings to the priests and how they live even. You know, God gives instructions for His people on what they're even supposed to eat. What they're supposed to wear. Beyond just being at the tent. But when they arrive in Canaan and they're at their own homes, how they're supposed to live. And God tells His people these things. He instructs them to be holy because I am holy. He wants His people to know that you're to live in such a way that demonstrates that you understand who I am. And you understand who you are. The holiness of God. We try to wrap our minds around the idea of God being holy. We could say that it's His moral purity, absolute moral purity. It's the thing that sets Him apart from all the rest of creation. The world that's been tainted by sin. God is morally excellent. He is, as you sang this morning, a righteous God. The righteous God. Because God is holy that no unholy thing can enter into God's presence. And this is kind of where the problem is. Because in our review of this book of Exodus that I just gave, Israel kind of blew the whole holiness thing with the golden calf. So now there had to be a, 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 a you know, a repairing of the relationship. There had to be some mending done, some preparation for God's people to be able to worship God as He desired for them to do. And this is what Leviticus does. Throughout Scripture, men and women would, when they came into contact with God or, or, or an angel that God had, sense, uh, had sent, they sensed His holiness. They, they understood His holiness. If you were to take and look at the book of Isaiah this morning, in Isaiah chapter 6, and I think they're going to throw it on the screen here, so I guess you can just look up here. But in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we find a man, a prophet by the name of Isaiah. He is serving uh, in the year that King Uzziah died. He says, In that year I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With, with twain He covered his face, and, uh, his face, and with twain He covered His feet, and with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. Here's Isaiah. He is a prophet serving near the end of the, the reign of the kings. And probably in all the land of Israel, there isn't a man more holy than Isaiah. He's living right. If you were to read the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 5, deal with these sermons that Isaiah preaches to the sinners around him. You know, woe unto those that, that mingle strong drink. Woe unto those that, that you know, join households together. Woe unto... And he preaches against everybody else. But when Isaiah sees God for who God truly is, Isaiah has kind of an existential crisis for a moment because he sees who he truly is. Instead of saying, woe is everybody else, how bad they are, Isaiah says, woe is me. He says, for I am undone. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Pause for a moment. Isaiah is a prophet of the Lord. He is a preacher. The words that he is saying, the things that are coming out of his mouth, that are coming past his lips, are God's words. And yet Isaiah still says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. God is holy. And when unrighteous, sinful men come into contact or, or get a glimpse of the true nature of God, we have no other response but to tremble and, and admit that truth. I think of the disciples. Peter and James and John in the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him, Peter, James, and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto him Elias, that's Elijah, and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. <laughs> I love verse 6. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. They, they go up to the mountain, we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and they get just a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory. A glimpse at the holy, truly holy nature of the one that they've been traveling with for three years. And Peter is so afraid, he doesn't know what to say, so he just opens mouth and inserts foot. The key truth of Leviticus is that God is holy. He has no sin in him, nor can any form of corruption survive in his presence. If something that is holy, or rather that is unholy, enters into the presence of God unprepared in the book of Leviticus, it is destroyed. And it's the nature of God's holiness. And perhaps you're sitting there saying, well, I mean, that just kind of sounds mean. Like God's some tyrannical bully, and he's like, he's just, you know, nasty and, and, and spiteful. No, no, no. You misunderstand God. It's, it's just it's the nature of who he is. And 
And it's the truth that God is dwelling in their midst. The Holy One of Israel is dwelling in the midst of Israel that is both a blessing to Israel, but at the same time, it's kind of dangerous. It's a blessing because it's the presence of God that guides them through the wilderness by, uh, you know, cloud by day and fire by night. It's a blessing because it's the presence of God that brings uh, uh, the manna and the quail and the water from the rock and all the things that cares for this massive nation of people wandering through the desert. The holiness of God dwelling in the midst of Israel is a wonderful and blessed thing because it set them apart from all the nations and was kind of the seal of God's promise that He would prosper them wherever they went so long as they were faithful to Him. But it was also dangerous in that if they did not truly respect the holy God that was dwelling in their midst, if they treated the holy things like the holy place, the tabernacle as something that was common or, or profane, if they, if they realized that God was dwelling with them, but at the same time said, I don't really care what God has to say, then they were in trouble. And we see that play out time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament and, and even into the New Testament. God's presence was, presence was both good and it was dangerous. And I think we can illustrate it uh, in this way, because uh, we, we are coming into the summertime. It is warmer. The sun has been out. How many would say that the sun is a good thing? It is a good thing. Life on planet Earth could not exist without the sun. The sun disappeared. We freeze. Okay? The sun is a source of life, of, uh, of, of goodness. The sun is a source of warmth. The sun, you know, it gives energy to the plants that photosynthesize it and, and then, you know, produce food for us and, and oxygen for us to breathe. But at the same time, the sun can be a dangerous thing. Perhaps some of you have a complexion similar uh, to uh, my wife where, you know, she goes out in the sun and it, it is a dangerous thing. Perhaps some of you, you can get away with it like I can. Uh, you know, you, you might tan a little bit. You get and enjoy that. Um, but even still, I have to put on sunblock. It, it's kind of like the sunblock forms this protective barrier so that I can enjoy the blessings of the sun without its harmful aspects, without the danger that comes along with it. The book of Leviticus kind of functions like spiritual sunblock for the nation of Israel. It teaches them how to dwell in God's presence and enjoy His blessings, enjoy His goodness, while at the same time getting a grasp for the holy nature of the God that has made them His own. So Leviticus teaches us about the holiness of God. But not only this, the, whole, the book of Leviticus also, number two, it exposes the corruption of sin and its effects in our lives. Just as much as we try to ignore or, or even play off the holy aspect of God at times, we don't like to consider the holiness of God, the other side of the coin is we really don't like to think of our own sinfulness. We don't like to think of ourselves as bad people. I mean, you may even run into uh, uh, somebody who is uh, a criminal. They, they, they've, they've robbed, they've stolen, but they say, well, at least I ain't never killed nobody. 
At least I've never done, you know, X, Y, Z. Even the most corrupt people have a code of ethics, a line. They say, well, I won't cross that line because that's a really bad person. We don't like to think of ourselves as, as bad. We like to look at ourselves in the best light. We like to think of ourselves as, as good, just morally decent people, the best maybe. But that's not the reality that we live with. That's not the world that we live in. You know, our very world has been cursed by sin. If you woke up this morning with aches and pains and joints that creak and groan, you know what I'm talking about. All of creation was affected by sin. And as you study the book of Leviticus, we find so many things that remind Israel of the corruption that sin has brought. The idea of bringing a sacrifice that an animal would die on their behalf because of sin. The idea of, of uh, and we'll get to the clean aspect versus unclean aspect, if they touched a dead animal, it reminded them of death that came in the world because of sin. See, the book of Leviticus, it not only teaches us about who God is, but it teaches us about who we are. It helps us understand ourselves. The Israelites throughout its pages would be reminded of the effects of sin and therefore long for the day when God would send that prophet like unto Moses. The one that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God said would uh, be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. They would long for the day when the chosen one of God would set everything straight. Does that sound familiar to us? We're pilgrims passing through this world. This world is not our home. And we look at all the things that are in this world, the wars and the famine, the death and the disease. We look at all these things that bring sorrow to our hearts and we long for God to set it right. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we say. We desire for Christ to set up that new heaven and that new earth that we read about in the book of Revelation. We live each day with that same hope and that same expectation that Leviticus gave to the Israelites. We know all things work together for good. We often quote that when people are going through sorrow. Brother Lynn, I'm sure somebody, well-meaning, but not always the most helpfully, has sent you Romans 8.28 this week. To them that love God and to them that are called according to His purpose. We love that passage. We know it, but do we know the context around that passage? If you were to go to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, Paul gives us the, the context of the passage. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and in verse number 18, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The creature was made subject to vanity. And that's this life that we live in. The book of Ecclesiastes says, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. James puts it this way, Our life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We've been made subject to vanity, not willingly, 
but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. See, Leviticus reminded the Israelites of the corruption of sin and gave them something else to look forward to. So also we as Christians, you know, we look forward to heaven. We look forward to eternity. We look forward to redemption of this old, worn out, broken down flesh for something better. Your mom's got a head start on us, Brother Lynn. She's, she's getting to enjoy that. One day, Jesus will set these things right. One day, Jesus will uh, put it all uh, back in the proper order. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's giving them his last chance lessons. He's about to be crucified. He's about to leave them for a time. And so he's trying to bolster their faith. And he begins John chapter 14 and in verse number 1 with these familiar treasured words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. For sake of time, we won't go there, but Revelation 21 describes this new place. A wonderful place. So Leviticus, it teaches us about the holiness of God. That it was both a good thing and and yet a dangerous thing for God's holy presence to be in Israel's midst. Leviticus reminds us of the corruption of sin through all of its offerings, through all of its purity laws, through all the even the, the, the things that they were allowed to eat or not eat. If you look at the dietary restrictions, many of the animals that they were to consider as unclean were the bottom feeders, the scavengers, the, you know, the, the vultures and things. And there were things that reminded Israel of death, and, and they served the holy God of life. But let me give you one other thing about Leviticus, just by way of introducing the book to you. It offers us a glimpse at God's plan to redeem the world from sin. A sacrifice. Tonight we'll be looking at the different offerings that Israel could bring. Three out of the five types of offerings that are laid out in the first part of Leviticus were offerings of atonement. There were things that were given as a sacrifice for my wrongdoing. Whether it was intentional, whether it was unintentional, whatever the case may be, I would give an animal as my sinless representative. It would die on my behalf. It would be able to go into God's presence, offered up before, you know, before me, you know, sent you know, by the hand of the priest, through the altar and, and everything else, it would go to God to make an atonement for my sin. Remember what I said about Hebrews? 
that the law was the shadow of good things to come. And every offering and every sacrifice were reminded of the ultimate offering, the ultimate gift. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 through 15, it says this in, Rome, in Hebrews 9, 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertained to the conscience, which stood only in meat and drinks and diverse washings and, and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come in high priest, of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so we see in Leviticus this incredible part of God's redemptive story. These Old Testament sacrifices, these Old Testament rituals, all these things that they would do in the tabernacle and later in the temple, they weren't the full picture. They weren't the completed process. They were just pointing arrows that led to a cross on a place called Mount Calvary where there is power in the blood that you sang about this morning. That Jesus Christ would come. He would be this perfect atoning sacrifice. He would live like we could never live. He was the true Holy One who lived in the midst of Israel and they didn't even know it. In fact, they rejected it. They spat upon it. They beat it. They turned it over to the Gentiles who had him whipped, crown of thorns placed on his head, and ultimately hung on the cross to die. The Holy One of God took all of our sin on His shoulders. There, being hung between heaven and earth, Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became our representative. He became our atonement. He became our sacrifice on our behalf. We who are sinners, and the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that we are all as an unclean thing. We all, uh, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. We could never be good enough for a holy God. Not that God, again, it's not that God is spiteful, it's just His character. 
It's his nature. He is morally absolutely perfect, and we are not. And so the morally absolutely perfect one came down to do what we could not do so we could have what on our own we could not have. Jesus made a way for us to dwell with God in our midst. In Acts chapter 2, we read the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit you know, coming with power upon the church and, and, and the church moving forward in the world. And the prophets... Uh, spoke of this day where God would pour out His Spirit. You know, in those days they had the tabernacle, God's presence dwelling in the midst of the tent, but now, now God's presence dwells in the midst of His church, in the hearts of every one of us who have received Him as our Savior. Leviticus is a powerful book. It is a rich book. And I've only given you a bird's eye view. We've not even dug into the actual passages of it. And I hope that maybe this, this, through these next several messages, and I'm not be able, going to be able to give you the whole series. I haven't even written the whole series. I'm going to give you as far as our church has gotten. I hope maybe it'll give you a desire to pick up a book in the Bible that you, you normally would skip over. You maybe not, might not care to, to read it. I hope it would give you a desire to open God's Word for yourself and draw more out of it than you've ever gotten before. Let's stand together. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I just spoke of what Jesus did on the cross. That's for each and every one of us today. Young and old, man and woman, rich and poor, it doesn't matter. Jesus died for you. And he offers a gift. It's called eternal life. But you have to accept it. You have to receive it. And so as I've got either one of them on, on each side of me, so I'm not sure who's leading the invitation. But as they come, if God's spoken to you and you need to receive Christ, why don't you make that decision today?